Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I am your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. And any long-term listener to this show knows that, uh, yes, we're primarily a business show, but when you do a show for as long as I have, you kind of take a lot of creative license with it. And if I see a story that catches my eye, I'm going to talk about it. And that's certainly the case today. Um, we're going to be uh, visiting with a cold case detective who has taken those skill sets and have applied it to a very interesting area. And in fact, he's been on uh, Dateline before, and his name is Jay Warner Wallace. And welcome to the program. Glad to have you on the program. Uh, what an interesting background. Talk a little bit about your background and uh, what led you into the area of apologetics. Well, I was uh, not a believer. I was raised in a family that was, uh, there were no Christians in my family. And so when I was 35, I entered a church for the first time, an evangelical church with my wife, who I think was, you know, definitely more interested in seeing what was going on in there than I was. And the pastor happened to say that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. He said a bunch of other things too, but that provoked me. And my skill set was uh, in evaluating eyewitnesses in criminal cases. And I eventually, you know, ended up doing a bunch of cold cases. And these are just unsolved murders. Murders. There's a lot you learn working those kinds of cases because you don't have access you, typically to the witnesses or the report writers from 30 years ago who have now died. So you have to figure out, like, what really happened? Well, that skill set is transferable in some way. And so when I first bought a Bible, I started reading the Gospels to see, like, what is the texture of these Gospels? Can they be tested in any way? How do we know if they really are accounts of something that actually happened in the first century? That's what started the whole journey for me. Yeah, very interesting. And so um, you're like a lot of people who end up having an encounter with God that it becomes, you know, it's, it's very personal. Um, but then it, because of your background, it took on a dimension that uh, probably even surprised you. No, ab- absolutely. Look, I, I, I say it all the time. I was so resistant that I had constructed this wall between myself and any proclamation of the gospel in Christianity. I just was not willing to hear it. I just, I just, you couldn't get a, you could, you could say that, you could actually preach the whole gospel to me, but I wouldn't have heard it probably past the first sentence because I had a barrier that I had constructed. I just needed to dismantle it. I need, not that I was trying to. Look, I've got a friendly struggle with the case for Christ, and, and I, I, he, he was trying to prove his wife wrong, who had become a Christian before, before he was. That wasn't my case. I, I, I wasn't really trying to disprove it or prove it. I just, I read the Gospels for the first time, and I saw that there were these differences, these variations in the accounts. And some people look at those variations, and they'll say, you know, that, that proves to me that it's not true. But my experience has been that variations of this nature are exactly the hallmark of eyewitness testimony. I've never had four witnesses to any crime. If it happened an hour ago, or a day ago, or a week ago, who agreed precisely on what they saw, you have to puzzle it as the detective. Yes, yeah, and it's interesting. You know, when I look at uh, at uh, you know how how does God perceive people who are not believers? I, I really think your type of believer is more difficult than uh, you know than those who actually sought to challenge their views for whatever reason. I think C.S. Lewis, for example, C.S. Lewis, um, you know, had come to the conclusion that he was an atheist and then realized he was intellectually dishonest in his opinion to be an, you know, to be an atheist and became an agnostic. And then he finally concluded it was intellectually lazy to be an agnostic. I got to go further than this, you know, looking at all Mm -hmm. the major theologies. 
Um, that's mm-hmm. someone God can typically work work with. Um, someone even having disdain towards Christianity in some ways is easier to work with than someone who is simply apathetic, which is what uh, you said. Oh, no about. doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I think the biggest challenge even now to the to the church is not atheism as much as it's apathyism. You know, it's it's that we are we are ap- so many, especially young people, are just apathetic. And I think part of that, if I'm honest with you, is because we've shifted our notions of how we define truth. If truth is simply derived from how you feel subjectively, what your subjective experience, your life story, if it's uh, that's how truth is derived. If there is no objective, transcendent, overarching truth. A narrative, God's story. If all all we are is a collection of our stories, well then yeah, you're going to be apathetic toward. Okay, that's good for you. It's not good for me. Uh, doesn't fit my world. Fits your world. Good for you, but I'm not interested. I think it's driving the apathy that we see. In other words, if everything cures what's ailing us, why would I be interested in your cure? If anything, right. if everything cures. But if there's an objective cure for what's killing us spiritually, that's a different story. And I think most of us aren't willing to share our subjective opinions about the best dessert. But if you had somebody who was dying of something and you had the cure and you knew this is the one objective cure, you'd be rushing to tell him about it. And that's what I don't see happening now because we've just abandoned the notion that there's an objective cure. Yeah, absolutely. There's no no doubt about it. There's been a, a war on objectivity, which is kind of funny because the the, the biggest advocates of, of worldview of uh, no absolute truths are the ones who are most likely to have the most absolutist views about their worldview. You know, right, like, right. Because to say there's you know, no you objective. challenge the thought that uh, you know that uh, absolute truth. Uh, it's possible or not? If you challenge their conventional view, you are you're you're like a demon to them. <laughs> it's yeah, really well, quite funny. And think about it: the, the the claim that there is no objective truth is an objective truth claim. So Correct. if you say, well, is it objectively true that there's no objective truth? Because if it is, then there's at least one objective truth, which means you just open the door to the thing you're denying. And so I think that part of it is us recognizing, and young people especially recognizing, that this view eventually has to implode because nobody can hold it. Everyone believes there are some objective truths. Now, you may d- differ on what you think is objectively true, but that's where I think the discussion has to start. And this is how I came to Christianity. I, I just needed to know. Look, I think part of it was, for so many years, the only examples I had of people who were Christians in my life were either uh, police officers who I knew on, on the job, detectives, who did not, I, a few, I just, I did know a few uh, police officers who were Christians, but if you asked them, why is this true, they could not defend it. It's certainly not the same way you would defend a criminal case. I thought that was odd for, for people who are, who are trained Casemakers, why can't you make a case for your faith? And the other group I was bumping into were the people who we were arresting who told us that they were Christians. And so I was a mocker of the entire notion because I thought there's just two groups here, a, a group who doesn't know why or if it's true, and a group that doesn't behave as though it's true. And if those are the two groups, I don't want any, any part of any of that. So that was what. So I think it's a lesson for all of us. We can't be one of those two groups in front of a disbelieving world. We have to make the effort to be able to defend what we believe reasonably, and we can't live in such a way that people can't. Now, look, we're all hypocrites. This is the nature of being human. But we can exacerbate it, so we have to make sure we don't do that.
Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Talk a little bit then about your work now. I know you work in both academic circles and with a uh, uh, fascinating place, the Chuck, uh, Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Very interesting uh, place. Ch- Chuck Colson's story is a fascinating one. I got the impression from uh, what I've read and, and people I, I have interviewed that knew him. I have I never interviewed him. Um, but uh, you know, this is a guy who... He was one of the most one of the most ruthless of the Watergate, t- uh, you know, members. This guy was pure Mach- Machiavellian in the way he approached uh, things, and to see the uh, depth and breadth of his conversion, largely, uh, I think, would have never happened if it had not been for his uh, cr- criminal nefariousness. <laughs> it's yeah, a fascinating story. Talk well, about that work that you do there. Well, that's very true. And here's the great thing about Chuck's story is that, number one, um, yeah, he, he definitely – God uses people like this that they experience. Sometimes you never look up until you're finally at the bottom. And so when he was in custody for all of this and he was going you – know, one of the things that he, he really recognized was how hard it was for the conspirators to keep the conspiracy in place. And that was something he later talked about that, that yeah, this is a conspiracy on the part of early uh, fakers who want to create a story about Jesus – it's really hard to keep. They couldn't keep it in place for minutes, let alone for decades, like you would assume in the first century. So that was one of the things that his own personal experience as a conspirator helped him to evaluate the claims of Christianity. And this center continues to evaluate the claims of Christianity and to compare them to the claims of culture. And that's why the yeah. Colson Center is so essential. Breakpoint every day. John Stone Street is a, is a great brother in the, in the cause, is constantly comparing the claims of Christianity to the claims of culture. And there are differences. <clears throat> and I think that in the end, we have to convince an unbelieving world that it turns out, and this is something I've just been writing about recently, is that the Bible describes the world the way it really is. And it describes the, 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 the human condition, the human, our human nature, the way it really is. And so if we, we would be wise... Even if we didn't believe, and all, by the way, all of the modern research related to human flourishing simply affirms the claims, the traditional, old-fashioned, biblical claims related to identity, related to humility, related to how you handle suffering and hardship, related to the importance of marriage and parenting, all of these old traditional claims we'd like to run away from. It turns out these are the very things upon which human flourishing is grounded. And so you do so at your own peril. If you were to abandon what is, even if you don't think it's true, you'd be wise to live as though it is, because that's the strength of the Christian worldview. Yeah, there's no question about it. And it did things and described things that has really stood the test of time. It's, it's uh, very fascinating. You, you even look at the uh, uh, science of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the idea of gravity, you know, is, is discussed uh what, 2,000 years ago, approximately, and the gravity t- discussed in such a context that, uh, more than that, almost 3,000 years ago, is discussed, you know, as, as Earth is an orb that floats in space, is essentially what it describes. Not scientific, but way more scientific than other uh, religions that talked about the Earth resting on the back of a turtle. <laughs> You know, millions adhere to that, uh, that theology uh, and have no problem about it. Uh, but somehow Christianity, in, in spite of being more accurate, or maybe because it's more accurate, is more vulnerable to attack. 
Well, and part of it, too, is think about it. This is not a science book. This is not even a book that's really intended to be a history book. It's a book that describes what your relationship with God and how to have a relationship with God. It's it's a book that talks about your spiritual well-being. And and so I would expect, though, that even in a book like that, I wouldn't encounter things that are contradictory to what we know. So what I I always say is that although it's not a science book, it doesn't contradict. This is why people 2,000 years later can still hold to a Christian worldview. This is why so much of science is predicated on a Christian world. People don't even realize this. I wrote a book called Person of Interest, just looking at the impact that Jesus and his followers have had on science. The science fathers of every major, well, the the vast majority of major scientific disciplines, believe it or not, those folks have all been, from quantum mechanics all the way back to modern astronomy, those folks have been Christians. We We have dominated the sciences. Now, we can choose to step out right now, and it seems to me that if we're not careful, this is what Muslims did. Muslims had a huge contribution to the sciences. And then around 13th, 14th century, they started to step out but for theological reasons. Well, we could do the same thing. We could step out for theological reasons if we feel like there's a competition between science and, and faith. But we don't have to do that, and we didn't do that in the past. We actually have contributed more than any other religious group. And so I think and we have to kind of assess, is, are, are our claims contradictory? To what we know, look, it shouldn't be because our worldview says that the special revelation of Scripture will always be consistent with the natural revelation of what we see in nature. And you see this in the pages of Scripture all the time. And it turns out that is actually true. Very interesting part of your story is your work with Dateline. In fact, uh, my understanding is you were the most interviewed uh, uh, detective in the history of Dateline, or one of the most. Talk a little bit about that relationship. Do you still do that type of work? Are you completely working in the area of Christian apologetics now? Well, the last Dateline we do was a couple of years ago now. So it's been so I, they, they will occasionally call you back because these cases, especially cold cases, they have nine lives, right? They, they, they thought they were done 35 years ago, and then someone reopens them 10, 15 years later, and they get publicized, and then something gets solved another 15 years later, and then something gets appealed. So these never seem to end. So I, I, I find myself being asked to come back. But my work now is centered on just making the case. Look, there are seasons. And if you get to a point, I'm in my 60s now. If you're going to be in your 60s and you're not focused entirely on the gospel, you're probably missing the target in some way. Because in the end, as we approach the end of this temporal life, we're at the gateway of something even greater. And if you're at the gate and you're not thinking about going how you're going to go through that gate or what life's going to be like on the other side of that gate, you're probably missing something. <laughs> so, so now yeah. my work is absolutely focused not on the crimes in the past, but on the lives of the people that I care about in the future. And that, that, that's why we have a public ministry where we're trying to make the case for why Christianity is evidentially reasonable, why a belief in God in general is evidentially reasonable, and, 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 and then I'll be able to set the table so we can do the most important thing, which is to share the gospel. Because look, wherever you are, if you're listening to this show because you love business, you love politics, whatever it may be, Every kind of nothing, the gospel cures every kind of stupid you can think of, whether that's political stupid, cultural stupid, uh, relational stupid, marriage stupid, whatever stupid you're encountering, and we all encounter it. The gospel has a solution. And so we have to be able to, why would we look at anything other than solutions at this point, especially at my age? So that's why I'm focused the way, the way I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, I don't want to sound overly commercial or marketing here, but it's a very unique niche. 
that I think is needed in that perspective. I think that there's a lot of people in the Christian apologetic space, particularly in the last few decades, that has become more and more popish and less and less serious, uh, in my opinion. And uh, I think you bring a very serious and unique perspective that betters uh, the gospel. There's so much out there that, frankly, I see in the apologetic space that is so baseless, I hate to say it, um, that uh, that kind of stuff does not provide credibility for something that certainly in, the, in how um, cynical our culture is needs all the credibility it can get. Well, there's no doubt about it. Look, in the end, if this is the cure, this is good news. That's why we call it the gospel. It just means good news. But does it sound like good news to people? I think what's shifting for a lot of people, especially young people, is not so much, is this evidentially true? It's, is this good? Is it beautiful? And so any attempt, we have to do both. We have to make a case for, because why would something be necessarily good if it's not even true? So I think we make a case for truth, why it's true, and then, but we can't stay there. We have to step above that and say, now let me show you why a life lived in light of the gospel changes everything. And that's why we're doing the work we're doing now. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I know you've written lots of books. I also know you do seminars. I also know that you uh, teach. Tell us a little bit about that. Can you give us the total picture, if you will, or not the total picture, but an overview of that. And in addition, what kind of things that people can do to get uh, connected to your work and learn more about it? Well, I mean, for the most part, you start writing in this, in this space, and I started talking about this back when I was doing Dateline all, all the time, and, and I, it eventually is going to blow up into something. And so we've written books, but we get, I teach regularly at Biola, another class coming up in May. So that's been fun to do. They have a great master's program in apologetics. And so we get a chance to, 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 to kind of make a case for this not, and train others who can also make a case. But I really see that making of a case as a spiritual discipline. In other words, those of us who are believers, we think, well, we ought to be praying regularly. We ought to, we ought to you know, be reading our scripture regularly. It should be like a daily kind of discipline that we involve ourselves in. Well, for me, that making the case publicly is a daily discipline. I try to do it regularly three times a week to make a case publicly at coldcasechristianity.com and there's so much out there that you can access for free I always tell people you don't need to buy a book until you've exhausted the free resources okay because that's what this ought to be the good news should not be something that's behind a paywall and so what we try to do is we put the good news out there three times a week at coldcasechristianity.com yeah, people should check that out. And, uh, you know, I, I, as you were speaking, one of my favorite verses is in Philippians 2, where it says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I think the individual, boy, this is going to sound like church show. We don't normally do this, folks. I know uh, our format hasn't changed, just a warning here. But uh, this is something that caught my interest, and it's something that's near to me. But I think that idea is something that isn't done a lot in Christianity. I think there's a lot of sheepish attitudes, and we should just move along. And uh, and those people are the most easily devastated by by those who would challenge their worldview. And so I think we should take Paul's advice, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, take it seriously, and that includes yeah. exploring this area. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of what we think, we think the love of God, the nature of God is complex. And one of the things he does perfectly in perfect balance, because he's in the fullness of both, is he balances in fullness, justice and mercy, truth and grace. You see it all the time through the Old Testament. Even when, when John writes about Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he says that Jesus came in the fullness of truth and grace. Why does he say that? Because that is the nature of God. In other words, it's a claim to deity. Now, if we want to love like God, we have tendency to think of love as just the mercy 
grace side. But no, love, as God loves, is a balance of truth and grace, of justice and mercy. It's tough love. It's doing, saying what you have to say, but doing it in love, in grace, in mercy. So that balance is difficult, and, and none of us perfect it. It's only, it's only in its fullness in the nature of God. We have to constantly struggle. And when you find yourself overlooking things that are terrible, that are not biblical, that are ungodly, that are sinful, because you think that love is all about mercy, you're not loving like God. And if you're constantly nagging at people about what they're doing wrong, but you're not showing any mercy, that's not biblical either. So balancing those two things is how to love like God loves. If we do that in the world around us right now, you're going to see a difference in how we are perceived. Jay Warner Wallace is our guest today. Thanks so much for being with us, Jim. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. I'm Kevin Price. This is the nationally syndicated Price of Business. Stay tuned for more after this.